This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. All right, it's been way too long since we've had David Carr on the podcast. We were so fortunate to have him give his amazing talk on syncope at the EM Cases Summit in November. After the summit, we got talking a bit about a great case that made him stop and reflect on his own practice as a seasoned master clinician. So Dr. Carr, we're just so happy to have you back on the podcast. Let's hear it, man. Yeah, you know, I, I before we even start talking cases, I just have to say the summit was unbelievable. Like what an incredible, what an epic, what a high summit. And uh, after doing that summit and seeing all those speakers, you know, I just was like, we got to do another Cars Cases because I just got to stay part of this because what an awesome program you put on. Really amazing work. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I think it was an incredible team effort and it really did kind of make me proud of REM community. Like there's so many good, bright, amazing people that made it happen. Cool. So I hear you had this case smack in the middle of the the pandemic that really made you think carefully about some principles of practicing medicine. So let's hear it. Yeah, I didn't want to tell you the case beforehand. I want this to be a surprise. And maybe we can go through this case the way it evolved. And you can kind of pitch in your thoughts. And I'll tell you how I was thinking. And I thought it was really just a very straightforward case. And as unlike a lot of the cars cases zebras, this isn't a zebra, actually. This is uh, something we see all the time. There's nothing crazy here. It's just a regular emergency medicine, bread and butter. So I don't know, right in the middle of COVID, I don't know, a year and a bit ago, I saw this 40-year-old woman. She came to the emergency department complaining of a sudden onset of left-sided chest pain. Now, I looked at her past medical history. Actually, I got involved in her care because the nurse showed me her ECG, and I kind of got a quick, brief history from the nurse that this is a 40-year-old female with pretty advanced breast cancer, has had a mastectomy, is on chemotherapy, and uh, basically was just kind of you know, sitting at her table having some tea and then had a sudden onset of left-sided chest pain and shortness of breath. And the last thing anyone wanted to do during COVID, and especially someone who's immunocompromised, was come to the hospital. So she put it off a day or two and uh, she came in and uh, the nurse handed me some vital signs and EKG. She had uh, a heart rate of 130. Her blood pressure was fine. It was about 130 over 82. She was afebrile, 36.2. Her rest rate was 24. And her SATs were 91% on room air. So Anton, I, I'm not trying to be smarter than anyone else, but you have a woman with advanced cancer um, who doesn't have COVID symptoms, who has sudden onset of chest pain, shortness of breath. That's pleuritic. What are you thinking? <laughs> so did she have the letters P and E on her forehead is my first question. <laughs> yeah, like, like, like that's the clinical vignette. Like I, I couldn't describe a better story 
for a PE. So I went in with the top three things in my differential being PE, PE. And, you know, I guess because she has cancer, I always think about pericardial effusion, but uh, the story didn't sound like it. But I went in with my approach. Um, I went in with my PPE and I went in with a rule out PE framework. But the first thing I want to say is when I looked at her EKG, you know, we're always shown EKGs and it's really about STEMI, non-STEMI. When I looked at it, I said, okay, no STEMI. Patient is sinus tacky, but she has no signs of PE in terms of the really exciting stuff like no S1, Q3, T3, no ST elevation and AVR, and none of the T-wave inversion and some of the inferior leads or some of the precordial leads that make you think PE, but still, she's sinus tacky with the perfect story. But Anton, there was one weird thing there, was that she had alternans on her ECG. So then I started to think, okay, well, that's crazy. She has a PE, but... She also has alternance. I wonder if she has pericardial effusion. So it prompted me to bring the POCUS machine into the bedside. All right. So you stuck the POCUS machine on and she had this giant pericardial effusion and now you were trying to figure out. I wish. I wish. She really didn't. So I went in there and uh, let's be honest, I have pretty good POCUS skills. I don't have super advanced skills, but I'm pretty competent with what I can do with the machine when I need it, like my rush exam. I, I'm pretty competent. Um, and I went in there and I took a little bit of a story. So not much to get apart from what I told you. She's never had a DVT. She doesn't clinically have a DVT. She just had sudden onset of shortness of breath and she was working hard, a little bit hard to breathe. And she had some chest pain when she took a breath in. It wasn't positional wasn't tender. It wasn't exertional. It didn't sound ischemic. So I went in with a focus of let's take a look at her heart and her IVC to look for a pericardial effusion and to look for, you know, signs of obstructive tamponade or anything like that. So I went in, I put the probe on and I had great difficulty getting uh, cardiac views. I'll, I'll be very honest. I could get it sub xiphoid, but had a a hard time getting a parasternal long view or a, a short axis view. So from what I could see on the subsidefoid views, she had a small pericardial effusion, like nothing to write home about. And her RV did not look dilated. So um, that was what I could gather. And with that same probe, I could see that her IVC was plump and plethoric. Sounds like the pericardial effusion wasn't the kind of pericardial effusion that you'd expect an alternance from first. Totally. Plump and plethoric would go with the PE, although you'd probably expect there, you'd probably see something in the right ventricle there if it was, yeah. if the if the IVC was that plump and plethoric, you'd probably expect uh, some RV finding. Although again, it depends how keen your eye is and your measurements are. Totally. And, and the other crazy thing was I couldn't even generate my cardiac probe, I could barely even see the hearts. Like I was like, does she have situs and versus? Like I didn't see anything. So you start to kind of second guess yourself, but I'm enough confident to say in that sub xiphoid that her RV wasn't crazy. So I was kind of left with, I think she has a PE because her story's classic. Um, I, I, I don't know much about this effusion, but I think it's small, but the treatment priorities are different. Right. If, if, if this woman was going to crump on me, am I sticking a needle into her heart or am I giving her TPA? And I didn't love either of those options. So what I did 
was I knew I had a stable young woman, at least for the time being, is I called the radiologist and I said, look, I need a CTPE rule out. I need it now. The person's young. I don't care what her creatinine is. I've brought her to CT. She's ready to go. I've consented her for contrast pre-creatinine. Well, so I'm already thinking... This patient's got a pericardial effusion, but you're thinking PE at the top of your differential. Luckily, she's not in shock, so you don't have to thrombolize her now for a PE. Um, but even just giving her any kind of anticoagulant, I'd be really worried that if she has a pericardial effusion that's probably related to her cancer, it's probably hemorrhagic. And the last thing you want to be doing is giving anticoagulants to someone with a hemorrhagic pericardial effusion. So that, that's a tough one. So, you know, we, we do think about giving anticoagulants when we have a very high pretest probability of PE, even before we've confirmed the diagnosis. But in this one, I'd, uh, I'd do exactly what you do. I would, I would lay off the anticoagulants until I had a confirmatory diagnosis. Yeah, I was looking for imaging. And I agree. I, I do think the master clinician anticoagulates high-risk PEs when they need to be done in the same way that we've always brought people back with positive dimers for imaging uh, the next day when given them a, a single dose of some DOAC. And, and this was not that case. I needed information because neither pathway were entirely clear to me. But I also was fortunate to work in a hospital and it was daytime where I could get a CT done. And I felt I had that 10 to 15 minutes of delay. And I kind of made it very clear to the rad that, look, I don't care creatinine. I want you to look at the film. I got the pericardiocentesis kit. I was kind of doubting my, my maybe I've missed a larger pericardial fusion, but I, I just wanted to be ready to go with what they had. And I, she was someone that I even went to CT with just in case she didn't do well. And uh, I have to tell you, Anton, like uh, I'm a, I think of myself as a someone who hunts for zebra, someone who looks for good things, and someone who's pretty thorough when I need to be. And I was feeling pretty confident with my uh, advocacy for this patient in the sense that I was like, you know, good on you, Dave, for getting a CT in three minutes for this woman and advocating and pushing hard and, uh, you know, really well done. I was almost patting myself on the back. And I went to CT. I brought her there. You know, you're sitting there with the CT tech. You're making small talk. And the images of the scout came up. And uh, the images of the scout of her CT chest came up. And I, I kind of vomited a little bit into my mouth. <laughs> that, that like taste of puke in my mouth. I, I, can, I, I remember this like it was yesterday in that I could taste the humble pie. I could taste the puke of finding an imaging test that showed she had attention pneumothorax. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, I thought to myself, David Carr, what did the stethoscope auscultation of her chest sound like? What to her did her pocus findings of her lung look like? And this case really made me reflect on many things, and we can talk about how it unfolded, but the real unfold was the mental errors that I made and the humility that I could taste, and I think it, it really struck me with a lot of lessons. We have all put our stethoscopes away for COVID. You know, I gave a talk at the summit on syncope and said it's an embarrassment to not auscultate 
sinkable patients. It's an embarrassment not to auscultate shortness of breath, chest pain, hypoxia. My stethoscope has been on my neck since that case. When times when no one was auscultating because I said to myself, I will never do that again. And furthermore, I think the hardest thing or the most important thing is that sometimes being knowledgeable and being skilled works against you. And sometimes you need to go back to first principles because I think the most humbling thing is that any medical student, resident, nursing student would have said, you know, Dave, I listened to her chest and I can't hear air on the left side, but I didn't listen or look. Yeah, Dave, you know, I can totally relate. You know, we've been both been practicing for, you know, around 20 years. And as you get on in your career, you cut corners here and there and you kind of make assumptions based on your experience. And sometimes you're kind of thinking three steps ahead. It's a good reminder to go back to your basic principles. And it's, uh, it's kind of amazing that, you know, if a medical student would have gone in there first, they probably would have made the diagnosis, right? Yeah, it's crazy. It's humbling. And, and I think emergency medicine is humbling. And I think one, look, I didn't COVIDize her and think she had COVID. Fortunately, she didn't have a fever and a cough. And that's a whole other rabbit hole in terms of misdiagnosis of every febrile person who comes into emergency medicine these days has COVID. Um, it was more that we've been afraid to examine patients. And uh, it's caused harm, potentially. What, the best thing about this case was this woman was totally fine. Uh, what's frightening and beyond frightening is that if she was hypotensive, I honestly would have been thinking about needles in her heart and TPA as opposed to a little angiocath in her chest that would have solved all my problems. And, uh, you know, I guess the other thing, it's funny, when you talk to POCUS enthusiasts, they have an approach that's constant for everyone. I doubted my POCUS skills. The reason why I couldn't see her heart was because the tension pneumo on the left side had really put her cardiac views made very difficult to ascertain. To the person with superior POCUS skills, they would have had that on their differential. For me, it was just, Dave, you suck. Like, just go sub point. That's the way you learned anyone. You'll be fine. You got what you need to get. It didn't fit into my thoughts. Um, my differential for alternans really stopped at pericardial fusion tamponade, but attention pneumo can do the same thing. Um, so look, it's incredibly rare that this woman had attention pneumo given all the pretest probabilities. But if you cut corners, you'll cause problems. The gift for me was she wasn't hypotensive and I didn't have to cause any harm. And I was able to solve this problem after the fact. But it's incredibly frightening and incredibly humbling, and it's a great reminder to just, just listen to patients, <laughs> auscultate them. If you're short of breath, they deserve a stethoscope. It really cannot be anything more. I mean, I, I didn't need POCUS. All I needed was auscultation. Absolutely. And just a little uh, clinical pearl there. So alternans can happen in tension pneumothorax, eh? Yeah, it can. Obviously, I looked this up like immediately after. It can. It's not like, a, a, it, you know, it's an obstructive cause that you will have it. So that's something I read. It's not well versed. Um, not something I submitted for case report, but it, it's a great EKG and uh, cancer patient with alternance, cancer patient with shortness of breath, cancer patient with hypoxia. I mean, you know, it wasn't like she had a subclavian line or uh 
portacath or something that would have predisposed her for tension pneumos. It wasn't like she had blebs in her lung. It's just crazy. But, you know, as we always say with this Swiss cheese model, if you jump for the big things, despite the pretest, you still have to rule out the obvious. And I didn't do it. And uh, I think it was a great reminder for me. And I, I think to people who listen to this show that we all make mistakes. We all um, overlook things. But you really want to be systematic in your approach to common things. You know, Anton, I'm just totally digressing here because I'm so excited. But, you know, it reminded me of something I saw a while ago. Was this person who came in with obvious Bell's palsy. You know, it was triaged a stroke. The nurse said, Dave, can you just clarify this isn't a stroke? I went out, realized this is classic Bell's. I had already written the prednisone prescription And then I went to look in their ears like I do for every single person who has bells. And there was no light on the autoscope. And my first suggestion in the lazy person that I am is, fuck it. I'm not getting an autoscope. There's no autoscope in this room. There's no light. I'm not looking in his ears. Come on. And I happened to be with a student. I said, could you just grab me that autoscope? And I took the autoscope and I took a look in this gentleman's ears and he was in severe pain. And I was like excited like a kid. And I I took off the probe and I looked in his ears and I said, crap, he's got Ramsey Hunt. And you know, I've never seen Ramsey Hunt. I have been looking for Ramsey Hunt with bells for 20 years, Anton. Maybe you see five to six bells a year. I've never seen Ramsey. But my approach is always Just look in the ears, even if they don't say anything, look in the ears. And fortunately, I wasn't lazy. That autoscope was like the stethoscope I didn't have. You know, I looked in the ears, but I had forgotten to listen to her chest. Do the things you always do. Recognize the patterns and look for the associations that you need to. Cut the corners when you have to, but not on big picture stuff. And really... I mean, Anton, I was so happy about this Ramsey. I, I can't even tell you. I'm like still happy about Ramsey. Great clinical take-home points. I mean, back to the basics, keep a wide differential, standardized approach, learn from your mistakes. I mean, great things to live by in emergency medicine. I think so too. So not a zebra, but could have been. So great to have Dr. Carr back on the show. Thanks so much, Dr. Carr. Next up, we have our peds guru, Dr. Sarah Reed, who's going to run us through a pediatric limp case, a classic presentation that I still find a bit challenging despite many times reviewing the topic. Take it away, Dr. Reed. Recently, I saw an 11-year-old boy who presented with acute hip pain. He'd been limping the night before when he went to bed, and then on the morning that I saw him, he was really having trouble getting around. He had played soccer a few days before, but he couldn't really remember an injury. And he had definitely felt tired the day before, but he didn't have any documented fever at home or in the ED. But the family had been using Tylenol pretty regularly for his pain. He'd been otherwise well in the preceding few weeks with no viral symptoms or sore throat. He was otherwise a healthy guy. And when I examined him, he looked well. He had normal vital signs. He was lying comfortably in the stretcher with his legs out straight. He definitely had decreased range of motion at his left hip due to pain. And the rest of his exam, so his knee, his abdomen, GU, spine, skin exam, all normal. 
When I got him up to walk, he was able to weight bear, but he definitely had a significant limp. So I gave him some ibuprofen and I sent him over for x-rays, so AP and frog leg pelvic x-rays. And I also did some blood work, so CBC, CRP, and blood culture. His x-ray was normal, his white blood cell count was normal, and his CRP was mildly elevated at 26. So because of that, I sent him back for an ultrasound of his hip, and it showed a small effusion. After the ibuprofen, he was moving around quite a bit better, but he still had a limp, and so I sent him home with a presumed diagnosis of transient synovitis, and I talked to them about using ibuprofen regularly for the next sort of 48 hours, and to come back to eMERGE if the pain was worse, if the limp was worse, if he developed any fever, or if the symptoms had not improved after 48 hours. So the next morning, his blood culture was positive for staph aureus, and he was called back to the eMERGE, and at that point, he had a fever of 39. So later that day, he had an MRI, which confirmed osteomyelitis of his left femoral neck, and he was admitted and treated with IV ANCEF and then stepped down to oral antibiotics for a total of four weeks. So I think this case is a great example of the important things to think about when you're seeing a kid with a non-traumatic limp and the importance of doing a bit of a workup and ensuring good follow-up. So there is a pretty broad differential for this, but it can be sort of organized based on the age of the child and whether or not there's been a fever. So I made a table uh, that's in the show notes uh, for you to take a look at, looking at sort of toddler, child, and adolescent, and then whether or not there's been a fever. So once you do a good physical exam and you identify that the hip is the problem, we usually start with those x-rays to rule out fractures or a mechanical problem. And then we add blood work if there's a concern that there might be an infection or inflammatory process going on. And if the x-rays are normal, you're going to use your blood work to help to differentiate between transient synovitis and an acute osteoarticular infection. So when we use that term, we're thinking about osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, and we need to remember that osteo and septic arthritis can occur concurrently in young children because the joint capsule extends beyond the epiphyseal plate so you can get spread from the joint to the metaphysis. If there's elevation of your inflammatory markers, significant fever, significant pain, we will often add an ultrasound to assess for joint effusion and the the soft tissues. And of course, we have to really think about doing an MRI with contrast. If there's been very significant fever, abnormal blood or the blood work's abnormal, or the pain's really significant, because this is going to be your most specific and sensitive test, uh, non-invasive test for osteomyelitis. Of course, if you can't get an MRI, you can do a bone scan, but the MRI is uh, superior. So transient synovitis, you know, those kids usually have mild restriction of their movement. They may or may not have fever, but it's usually low grade. They have a story of a recent or even current viral infection. They may have mild elevation of their inflammatory markers. X-rays are normal, and the hip ultrasound can show a small effusion. And with those kids, we usually prescribe regular ibuprofen for a few days, close follow-up, you know, good instructions on when to return if there's any progression or persistence of the symptoms. So that's what I was doing with the patient that I described. And when we're thinking about the acute bacterial osteoarticular infection, so those are the ones we're we're worried about, you know, the kid is usually more unwell. They're often febrile, either on history or in eMERGE. They have, you know, significant decreased range of motion. They talk about, you know, when it's in the hip, you have a classically, you know, flexed and externally rotated hip to decrease the intracapsular pressure. Of course, if the infection's in, you know, other joints or or the long bones where it's a bit easier to examine, you might have point tenderness, you might have warmth, you might have erythema, you might have an effusion. And those kids, you know, need the x-rays. We need to do the blood work like we talked about. We add the ultrasound 
And then they're going to need an emergent ortho consult, you know, especially if you're not comfortable tapping the joint, if it's like a knee or an ankle. And if if you're concerned at all about a septic hip, ortho needs to see them because those kids do go to the OR to have their hip washed out. You might remember the Kocher criteria, you know, that's from 1999. So four criteria, the more of which you have a higher chance of having septic arthritis. So the four criteria were non-weight bearing, ESR more than 40, fever and white blood cell count greater than 12. And if you had one of those, you'd have a 3% chance of having uh, septic arthritis. And if you had all four, it's like 99%. Later, CARED did uh, added, added to those four criteria, CRP greater than 20. And it also reported like a very high um, rate of septic arthritis, the more criteria you have. But we have to remember these, both of those tools were developed in very select populations, not a general emerge, like all comers kind of situation. And neither of those tools perform well in external validation. So, you know, a recent systematic review published in 2020 basically looks at all the things that we do for, you know, septic arthritis, for example, in terms of history and physical and and investigations. And the evidence is just like really low quality and there's no single test or or prediction tool that performs really well in making this diagnosis. So we really have to like put everything together and just have a really high index of suspicion. We need to think about um, acute osteoarticular infections in any child who presents with pain in a bone or a joint or what we call pseudoparalysis. So that's when they're just not moving the limb normally or using the limb normally. And fever definitely supports the diagnosis, but it might be absent when you see them. So this is what happened to my guy. You know, this infection develops from hematologic, like a hematologic source or seeding from the scan or from trauma, but the source of the bacteremia is usually not clinically evident. So it can, it's a bit occult, this whole thing. And when we're thinking about the bacteria for this, it's Staph aureus is number one. We also see quite a bit of Kingella kingi, especially in young kids under the age of four, and you can have some like strep pneumo and group A strep as well. But since staphylococcus is number one, ANSEF is a great choice for your first antibiotic. And we really need to think about an osteoarticular infection when a kid has a staphylococcus bacteremia with no apparent source because staphylococcus is never a contaminant. The Canadian Pediatric Society published a statement on these infections back in 2018, and they had a couple of other little pointers. One is, you know, CRP is likely better than ESR, so we usually just order that, and that's used to follow, actually, as the patient's um, being treated. The lytic lesions that you can see with osteo on plain x-ray, really, we don't see them until 7 to 21 days post-onset, so not a great test early on. And since this is a hematologic infection, usually, we really need to get a good blood culture. And the volume of blood really matters in kids when we're doing blood cultures. And so I put a little table in the show notes just to show how much blood we need to take, uh, depending on the weight of the child, in order to try and get an accurate blood culture. So for me, the take-homes when you see a kid with a traumatic limp is that the age of the child and the presence of fever will dictate your differential, that we really need to do like a full exam because it's quite a broad differential. Use your x-ray and add in inflammatory markers and blood culture. If you're uh, worried about something more systemic going on, we can add an ultrasound, which is a great test looking for effusion and what's happening in the surrounding soft tissues. And then MRI with contrast is the best test if you have a kid with persistent pain and fever and really need to look for um, those more occult infections. Lastly, really important to have good discharge instructions and follow-up as we can see by the case that I presented. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Reed. Amazing as always. Okay. You get a call to recess. You go in, you see a high BMI patient with a trach. 
you can hear the gurgling. You look up at the monitor, the sat's 80%. Your heart rate goes up. Do you have an approach to this? Let's see what Swami has to say about managing the patient with a trach. When patients present to the emergency department with a trach in place, we sometimes get a little anxious because we're not very familiar with the hardware. Maybe we're not familiar with the anatomy. And of course, the patient may be presenting with an airway issue. So that already gets us a little bit anxious. But if we understand a little bit more about these devices, I think we can take care of these patients pretty well and we can have a good systematic approach to doing that. There are some great resources out there. Justin Morgenstern has a couple of posts on First 10 EM that you should check out. There's a really nice one-page diagram by doctors Nick Mark and Helen DeCudo. We'll post that in the show notes. And the resuscitation crisis manual that Scott Weingart has put together also has a nice two-page summary of taking care of tracheostomy emergencies that is definitely one to check out, also put together by Justin Morgenstern. The two things from an anatomy perspective we have to understand is where these are placed, typically between the second and third tracheal rings, which means it's below the cricothyroid membrane, and the balloon that is inflated on that tracheostomy sits just posterior to the anominate artery and just anterior to the esophagus. When patients present with bleeding or they present with difficulty breathing, some respiratory distress, hypoxemia, there's a couple of things we want to know as we are taking care of the patient. We want to know the age of the trach. Seven days seems to be kind of the magic cutoff. If the trach is older than seven days, the trach is likely to be mature, which means that if the trach comes out or we remove it, that trach will be maintained. Whereas if it's less than seven days old, it's likely that you can create a false trach by trying to replace something into that spot. So we have to know a little bit about the age. It would be great if we also know why the trach was placed. That might help in our management. And finally, we want to know if this patient had a laryngectomy and has no upper airway or if they have the upper airway maintained, which means that we can bag them from above. We can intubate them from above. There are three major trach-related emergencies that we see in the emergency department that we need to handle. Number one is decannulation or dislodgement. If the trach is out, we can start by providing some supplemental oxygen. We can give BVM from the top and someone has to occlude the stoma, or we can bag through the stoma and someone occludes the mouth. Bagging through the stoma can be done with a pediatric face mask. That's an easy way to adapt that bag valve mask so you can deliver oxygen through the stoma. And that can buy you some time to figure out what's next. And while you're doing that, you want to call some of your consultants down to the bedside to help you manage the patient. ENT, anesthesia, anybody you got in house, get your fiber optics to the bedside or call those consultants that have fiber optics because that's going to be really helpful. If the trach site is less than seven days old, then replacing this blindly is not going to be a great idea because it's easy to create a false track. The ideal would be to place fiber optics and then place a new trach over fiber optics to know you're in the right spot. The less ideal, if you don't have fiber optics available, those backup consultants aren't going to be available to you, is to gently place a bougie, feel that it's in the airway, and then you can either place a 6-0-ET tube or you can replace a smaller size trach into that stoma. If the trach is older than seven days, I would still say don't replace it blindly if you don't have to. So if you have fiber optics, again, that is still the best way to go. Placing a bougie, placing the trach over the bougie, also a good way to approach this. But if it's older, then you probably can place the trach blindly. 
Now, regardless of how you get that trach back into place, you want to immediately confirm placement with end title CO2. We're not waiting for an x-ray here to figure out whether you have successfully placed this and you don't want to wait for your pulse ox to rise because that can be delayed as well. Instead, drop the end title CO2 on there, make sure that you're in place. Let's move from there to emergency number two, which is obstruction. And again, I would still call your consultants, your backup to the bedside, get fiber optics as well. Regardless of age of that trach, the first couple steps are the same here for obstruction. Number one is to deflate the cuff and then bag valve mask them from above, provide that oxygenation. Next, we wanna remove the inner cannula or any other attachments to that trach. And then we're gonna pass a suction catheter. If the suction catheter clears the obstruction, Fantastic. Go ahead and hook up your bag valve mask to the trach and make sure that it's patent. If the suction doesn't pass, well, then we need to replace that trach. And here's where we're going to diverge based on the age of the trach. If the trach is less than seven days old, again, the best way to do this is with fiber optics. If you can put a fiber optic scope through the trach, remove the obstruction, and then place a new trach, that's fantastic. But often what you have to do is remove the trach, place the fiber optic scope, through the stoma, and then place the trach again, just like we did with the decannulation when it's less than seven days old. If the trach site is mature over seven days old, then we can again do the same thing we did with decannulation in the over seven day group. We can remove the obstructed trach and replace another one blindly. We could remove that obstructed trach, place a bougie, and then place a trach over that. Or if you don't have a trach, of course, you can use a 6-0-ET tube. And again, if you have fiber optics, you can remove the trach, use your fiber optics, even though you have a mature tract, just to ensure a little extra safety. The final major emergency we see is bleeding. And once again, we want to call for our backup. We're very concerned about a tracheoanominate fistula here. Those patients are going to need to go to the operating room. So go ahead and get your surgeons on board, get your ENT, your anesthesiologist, whoever you need to take that patient up to the operating room. Early on, tracheoanominate fistula isn't the most common cause of bleeding. Often you can just have some local bleeding or maybe bleeding from a little bit of aggressive suctioning. And if you have that local bleeding around the site, you can fix that with some direct pressure, maybe a little bit of silver nitrate. But the important thing is to always assume the worst. Even when you just see a little bleeding or you're given a report that there was bleeding that is now resolved, we want to make sure that we are not missing a tracheoanominate fistula because a lot of these patients will come in with a herald bleed, something that looks pretty minor, it resolves on its own. Then they come back with a massive bleed and the mortality rate from a massive bleed from a tracheoanominate fistula is extremely high. So again, we want to have a good approach to this. Always think about the possibility of erosion of that balloon into the anominate artery that's creating that fistula, that's creating that massive bleeding. How do we address it if that's what we think is going on? Number one is that we can overinflate the cuff. That can provide tamponade onto that anominate artery, and then you get the patient up to the operating room to have that fixed. If that doesn't work, if you try to overinflate the balloon and you're not able to control the bleeding, then the first thing we're going to try to do is to intubate from above. Once we can intubate from above, then we can remove that trach. We're going to place a finger in the stoma, and then we're going to compress that anominate artery anteriorly against the sternum. By providing that direct pressure, we clamp off that anominate artery. We should be able to stop the bleeding. And then whoever's finger is in there doesn't take that finger out until the patient is in the operating room and ready to have that operation done to have this problem fixed, which means that you're going to be riding up the elevator to the operating room with that patient, or you're going to be transferred to another site with your finger in place, because once you take that finger out, that bleed is going to open up again. 
The one other thing that we should mention is that not all of the times that patients come in with respiratory distress or hypoxemia is the trach the issue. When that patient comes in, provide some BVM through the trach. If you're getting a good passage of air and the hypoxemia is improving, then it's unlikely that this was just an obstruction or a problem with the trach itself. And we need to look for all of the other issues, pneumonia, pneumothorax, PE, all the other things that could cause respiratory distress, understanding that the trach is just a passenger and isn't the problem. There's your structured approach looking at the three most common emergencies for trachs that present to the emergency department. And remember that we want to know the age of that trach that's going to help to guide management. In most situations, we can provide oxygen from above through BVM, or if it's become dislodged, that trach is out, then we can supply oxygen through the stoma. And being able to do that, being able to oxygenate the patient gives us a little bit of time. It buys us some time to think about those two first complications, the decannulation or dislodgement and the obstruction and what to do. And then finally, remember that when you see bleeding, assume the worst. Assume that that patient has a tracheoanominate fistula, which is going to need surgical repair. And the best ways to control that for you is overinflation of the balloon, direct tamponade with a finger and get the patient to the OR. Beautiful, Swami. Thank you so much. I'm going to need to review the show notes and Justin's posts on that topic a couple of times and visualize what I do in those three situations so that I'm ready for them when they come. By the way, in case you missed the EM Cases Summit where Swami and Sarah Reed and David Carr spoke so brilliantly, don't worry, we've got you covered. Until mid-February, you can get full streaming access to all the talks, all the procedural videos, all the panel discussions and rants, everything through the emcasesummit.com website. If you're a regular listener to EM Cases and you've been learning from our free resources for a while, please consider supporting us so that we can keep on being free open access by purchasing the streaming package of the summit. Again, that's at emcasesummit.com to get your full access. All right, our next quick hit is from a special guest, Dr. Noor Khatib, a Canadian EM physician at Lake Ridge Health and Markham Stouffville, who does rural EM work in the far north. She, interestingly to me at least, also has a side gig doing voiceovers. So perfect for podcasting, right? So of course, I just had to ask her onto EM cases, and thankfully she kindly obliged. Here's Dr. Noor Khatib on lessons learned from practicing EM in remote locations. A few times a year, I leave the concrete jungle that is Toronto, and I go up to Northwest Territories and Nunavut and work in remote areas. Most of the areas I work at have no CT scanner and no lab services. I know, right? I used to think it's impossible to function, but it's actually quite liberating to hone in your clinical skills and serve a community in need of your medical care. Besides, the beauty of emergency medicine is your skills are transferable. And when you work up north, you get to see parts of Canada that are so beautiful and you wouldn't have known about them otherwise. And the Northern Lights, that's a spiritual experience on its own. Now, when you're working up north, you're also responsible for helping nurses in remote locations hundreds of kilometers away from you, just by the phone. Like a telemedicine ACLS PALS code leader. Sounds rough, but it happens a lot. So let's get through this call that I received while I was in Iqaluit, Nunavut, pretty far up north, above the tree line where no tree will grow. 
I came onto a shift at 7 p.m. and immediately I heard the shrill, loud red phone ringing. That's the code phone. Meaning there's a remote location with an unstable patient and a nurse needs your help immediately. These are patients that are deemed to need further medical management from remote communities. Since I'm in Iqaluit, the only center with doctors in that region, they're sent to me. This case was a 26-year-old male with decreased LOC and the nurse is suspecting an overdose. His ABCs are stable, GCS is fluctuating from 13 to 14, his vital signs are as follows, blood pressure 100 over 60, respirate 24, O2 at 95%, heart rate of 110. The nurse immediately makes sure there's monitors on the patient, O2 on the patient, that his vitals are cycling, two large bore IVs, and she faxes me an ECG. There are no signs of trauma, and the remote location, the nursing station that is hundreds of kilometers away, has no labs and no imaging. The patient denies any overdose, and the family are unsure of what happened. Now the question is, what do I have available? What I have available is something called an ISTAT machine, which is a handheld in vitro analyzer designed to be useful at the patient's bedside and usually gives us some lab results within a few minutes. Simple things like lactate, blood gases, sometimes a creatinine that's not very reliable, and a chem 8. Now we all know this patient needs to be flown to an area with a higher level of care, but it all depends on the weather, pilot schedule, and other requests in the area. That night, I already had three planes coming my way with serious cases, a testicular torsion, a rule-out ectopic, and an epileptic young boy who fell into a lake in his hypothermic. So the planes were already busy with these patients. There are three lessons I learned working early. Number one, know which labs and imaging will truly make a difference. So know your evidence-based medicine. Some of these flights to bring patients to me are over $20,000. So we need to make sure that we're bringing people in for the appropriate labs and the appropriate imaging. Lesson number two, learn to delegate. You can't do it all. Avoid unnecessary transfers and consider whether patients can be treated by the nurses. I've walked nurses through removing fish hooks, sewing up a laceration, and even relocating a shoulder. Lesson number three, call for help. You're never truly alone. Top specialists are always a phone call away, and no matter how remote you are, you're never truly alone. Back to our case. The 26-year-old patient admits to drinking antifreeze. So now we know this is a toxic alcohol overdose, ethylene glycol. It's found in engine coolants, cleaning products, aircraft de-icing fluid, it's ingested either as a suicide attempt or alcohol substitute. Ethylene glycol itself is not toxic, but it is intoxicating. It's metabolized by ADH and ALDH to toxic metabolites, which are oxalic acid and glycolates. So, ethylene glycol, not toxic, but breaks down into toxic metabolites. The patient admits to drinking the ethylene glycol 12 hours ago. So he's in stage two of the ethylene glycol toxicity. Stage two of this toxin is when you have cardiopulmonary issues, hypotension, tachycardia, pulmonary edema, and ARDS. This patient is going to soon be very unstable. 
How do you diagnose this? The gold standard is ethylene glycol levels, but of course we don't have that here. You should suspect it if you've got an osmolar gap and an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Don't forget, it is part of your mud piles. The antidote, fomipazole or ethanol. Fomipazole blocks ADH, preventing the toxic metabolites. Ethanol also does this. The response to treatment, you can follow cereal bicarbs. Things you can add are thiamine and pyridoxine. These help convert the glycoxylic acid to non-toxic metabolites. If a patient's pH is less than 7.25, this patient may need hemodialysis. So back to our remote location, we've got an iStat machine. I requested that the nurse get some blood gases and a rough creatinine from the iStat machine. It looked like his creatinine was up and his pH was 7.1. This patient will need hemodialysis. I am far, far away from that. So this patient's level of care is even beyond the major city in the region, which is where I was at in Iqaluit. I called our nearest accepting ICU, which was Ottawa, and they accepted to take the patient for further monitoring and possible hemodialysis. Now, remember our initial issue. I have three planes coming my way, the weather is bad, and there's really no way of getting this patient to me or to Ottawa. We ended up trying to triage him at a higher level, and we had to call a VIP medevac plane from Winnipeg to fly to Nunavut and then take the patient to the ICU in Ottawa. Even through remote telemedicine, the patient got the appropriate care. The nurses had started fomepazole, had given him thiamine, he was getting the antidotes he needs, and supportive care was initiated immediately. The patient left the Ottawa ICU a few days later in excellent condition. Thanks so much for all you do, Dr. Katiba, and all the rural physicians listening. I'd like to highlight a few key points from episode 106 with Emily Austin and Margaret Thompson on toxic alcohol. First, one great clinical pearl is that the differential for a metabolic acidosis with a very low bicarbonate level, say of one or two, is really quite small. It's just really three things. It's either toxic alcohols or severe sepsis or it's metformin-induced metabolic acidosis. Uh, so if you see that very low bicarb, there's really not too many things that can cause that. And a, a key concept is that the acidosis and osmolality in toxic alcohol poisoning are inversely related. So as the patient becomes more acidotic, the osmolality decreases so that a normal osmolar gap does not rule out toxic alcohol poisoning. For the hockey fans out there, think of the relationship like a pair of hockey sticks in a cross formation like you'd have in a photo of a hockey team. Another great pearl is that the triad of acidosis, high osmolality, and low or zero ethanol level is highly suspicious for a toxic alcohol ingestion, especially if they're intoxicated but their ethanol level is very low or zero. Another clue to ethylene glycol toxicity is actually hypocalcemia with a prolonged QT on ECG. Uh, so even if you can't get a calcium right away, just take a look at that ECG. If you see a prolonged QT, that's a nice clue too. If you do get a CT head as part of your altered LOA workup, you might actually see bilateral basal ganglia hemorrhages with ethylene glycol ingestion, uh, but that's usually a pretty late and rare finding. All right. 
Now, a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the physician schedule system on steroids. The Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the standards of the department, filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts that I don't want. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who will fill about 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts every month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. So visit metricade.com slash emcases to find out more. All right, last but not least, my foam friend, Justin Morgenstern, is going to update us on the latest literature when it comes to ketamine for managing agitation in the ED. Now, until recently, using ketamine for severely agitated patients was based on expert opinion and a few small observational studies. Now, there's some evidence. Ketamine is a pretty amazing drug. It's one of the most effective and safest sedatives and analgesics that we have. It's hard not to love it. And so it's not surprising that it's become incredibly popular over the last few years for the management of agitated or excited delirium. However, the data supporting ketamine for agitation was pretty sparse. Until this year, we had no RCTs. And one observational study showed a very high rate of intubation. However, evidence-based medicine and science in general has always drawn on many different sources of knowledge. We have lots of experience with ketamine, and we know it's one of the safest drugs that we use, and we know it's going to work very quickly, and we know severe agitation can be dangerous, and we need a quick, safe option. So I think it was very reasonable, and probably even, quote, evidence-based, if you started using ketamine for severe agitation. But the very foundation of science involves testing our assumptions and searching out data that might make us change our minds. So even if using ketamine for severe agitation might have been considered evidence-based, we still want to see RCTs to better understand the practice. And in 2021, we got two such RCTs that we should quickly review. The results aren't surprising, but they also aren't definitive. And even though the trials are positive, it wasn't a definitive win for ketamine. So paper number one is Lynn 2021 in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. It's a single-center randomized open-label pilot trial that enrolled 93 adult emergency department patients with what they call combative agitation, meaning they were presenting an urgent danger to themselves and staff. They randomized these patients to either ketamine or a combination of haloperidol and lorazepam. Ketamine was given as 4 milligrams per kilogram IM to a max of 500 milligrams, or if there was an IV, one milligram per kilogram. Haloperidol was 10 milligrams, either IM or IV, although clinicians were given an option to decrease that to five. Lorazepam was given as either either IV or IM as two milligrams, and again, clinicians had the option to either decrease that to one milligram or just omit it altogether. The patients are exactly what you would expect. The mean age was 39, 62% of them were male. 95% of the patients received the study drug IM, which makes sense. These are severely agitated patients. 60% of the haloperidol group got that full dose, 10 milligrams, but that means that 40% got lower doses. And I think that probably represents our normal clinical practice. Many of us use 5 milligrams of haloperidol, not 10, but it could bias these results against haloperidol. The results? 
Quick summaries, ketamine was quicker, but probably with more adverse events. For the primary outcome of adequate sedation, which they defined as an RASS equal to or less than one at five minutes, uh, ketamine was successful in 22% of patients as compared to zero in the Halibert, Peridol, Lorazepam group. By 15 minutes, it was 66% versus 7%. The mean time to sedation was 15 minutes with ketamine, 37 minutes with Haloperidol and Razepam. So ketamine was about 15 or 20 minutes quicker. Keep that in mind. Both options work, but ketamine buys you an extra 15 minutes or so. So you really want to be thinking about what patients do you see that 15 minutes really matters? In terms of adverse events, Hypoxia, defined as a SAT less than 92%, was higher with ketamine, 21% versus 10%, but the difference wasn't statistically significant, and it was pretty short-lived. There was just one intubation in both groups. There was a single death in this trial, and it was in the haloperidol group. Now, with only 93 patients, this study is way too small to tell us anything about the really bad outcomes we care about, right? Transient hypoxia, that just doesn't worry me that much. But if one of these strategies ended up causing more intubations or more deaths, that would be really important. And with 93 patients, there's just no way to know from this data. So my take home from paper number one, ketamine is about 15 or 20 minutes faster, but the rates of adverse events is likely higher. And we just don't have enough data to tell us about more serious adverse events. Paper number two is Barbic et al. in 2021, Annals of Emergency Medicine. The results are almost identical to the first trial. They randomized 80 patients with severe agitation. It was supposed to be about double that, but the COVID ended up shutting down their research operations. This trial compared ketamine 5 milligrams per kilogram IM to a combination of haloperidol and midazolam, both at, at just 5 milligrams IM. The median time to, to sedation was 6 minutes with ketamine and 15 minutes with the combination of haloperidol and midazolam. Serious adverse events were once again not statistically different, but they were clearly higher with ketamine, 13% versus 5%. Now, considering that these are very sick patients, the serious adverse events really don't seem that bad to me. Two cases of apnea, one laryngospasm, one dystonia, one patient requiring oxygen, but importantly, no intubations and no ICU use. But these are things that are important to keep in mind. You know, for some reason, neither of these trials comments on injuries, either to the patient or to staff. And one of the major reasons we're sedating these patients is for safety. So I really think that should be an outcome in these trials. And I think it's really important to keep in mind, time to agitation or time to sedation is a surrogate outcome. Time only matters if it keeps staff members or the patients safer. But we shouldn't be doing something just because it's quicker. So bottom line. There appears to be a bit of a trade-off here, with ketamine providing more rapid sedation, but also probably more adverse events. In our most agitated patients, rapid sedation is likely to be very important, both for the safety of patients and for the safety of the staff, and probably warrants the adverse events that were reported in these trials. However, I really worry about indication creep. If people start using ketamine for patients with less severe agitation, the harms could easily outweigh the benefits. Personally, I think the role of ketamine is almost always going to end up being in the pre-hospital setting. If a patient can be transported to us, they sort of, by definition, aren't that agitated. If the patient is so agitated that they're unsafe in the field, that's where ketamine is going to shine. And that's also an environment where 10 or 15 minutes is really going to matter. 
I think whatever option you choose in the emergency department, it's important to recognize that these patients are critically ill. You aren't sedating them in order to put them in a dark corner just to sleep it off. If a patient is sick enough that they require ketamine, they need a recess room. Your goal is to sedate them so that you can urgently determine and manage the cause of their sedation, to get them to CT, to manage hyperthermia, to manage their ABCs. I think it's reasonable to use ketamine. But among the patients who are calm enough to be transported to the emergency department, I think we're actually going to end up using this pretty rarely. The pre-hospital setting is a completely different conversation. I tend to agree with Ruben Strayer's take on ketamine for agitation. If the patient is so sick that you would require intubating that patient for their own and for staff's safety, then ketamine is a brilliant option. However, the patient must be given the same, the exact same attention they would have received if they had been intubated. They need a recess room. They need one-to-one nursing. They need urgent investigations and preparations for an advanced airway management. If you don't think your patient warrants that degree of attention, then ketamine is probably the wrong agent to choose. That was such a great add-on to our deep dive episode 115 management of the agitated patient with Ruben Strayer, who Justin mentioned in his quick hit. And again, Margaret Thompson, uh, that was recorded before these RCTs even existed. So thank you very much, Dr. Morgenstern. That about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits podcast. If you haven't picked up your video streaming package for the EM Cases Summit, where Ruben Strayer gave an amazing talk, by the way, please do through our dedicated website, emcasesummit.com. So until next time, stay safe and take it easy. <laughs>